News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm one of the first kind of hot topics of the federal election campaign. This issue of mandatory vaccinations, whether it's for domestic travel, as the liberals have said, or federal workers who would be terminated if they weren't vaccinated, as the NDP have suggested. So what are all the parties saying about this? Well, for more on this issue, we're joined now by Amanda Connolly, Global News political reporter. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So this is clearly, there's, this is one of those issues where it feels like every party has a slightly different stance. Yeah, I think that's, that's really what we're seeing here. And again, there are some similarities. Uh, really what we're seeing is, I think, a conversation around um, what, the, what the responsibilities are here for people to get vaccinated and, and what roles and what activities do we think that there is an extra, I guess, um, responsibility, again, to make sure that we're keeping people as safe as possible. And so that's really what been what we've been hearing from the federal leaders, of course, Justin Trudeau, the liberal leader, uh, when he was uh, in his role as prime minister shortly before the election was called, did introduce government policy that would require um, vac- proof of vaccination to fly on, um, to get on planes, to hop on a train across the country, and also for federal workers, uh, saying he expects similar efforts from the federal, uh, federally regulated workplaces as well. So we're seeing from him, again, really a push here, I think, to, to uh, not so much create a wedge issue here, but really that this is an issue the Liberals think that they can win on. And we're seeing that in polling, very broad support for some form of vaccine mandate, vaccine passport, things like that. And so we're seeing similar moves as well from NDP leader Jagmeet Singh saying that there should be enforcement of these kinds of vaccine requirements for some workers, particularly in the public service, up to and including potentially termination. Right. What about the Conservatives? Where do they come down on this? Yeah, this one, uh, we've been hearing a lot of conversation around this. And and really what we're hearing from Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, is that he does not think that vaccine uh, mandates, vaccine kind of passports here are the best way to go about this. He's argued that uh, increasing rapid testing, increasing kind of uh, screening and scrutiny of people um, would be an adequate and a reasonable compromise here to respect people's personal privacy as well as trying to keep people as safe as possible. And so uh, this really is the conversation that's playing out right now. The Liberals, of course, have been taking that stance from O'Toole and saying, uh, accusing him of not doing enough to take this seriously. Uh, the, the Conservatives, of course, are saying that there there is a reasonable balance here to be found. And this really is what we're watching to see what the reaction is from Canadians when they head to the polls. Right. And this has also turned out to be quite passionate on the actual campaign trail itself, hasn't it, Amanda? Because there have been protesters that have been kind of dogging some of the candidates on this. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we, we've seen some protests kind of right the way through uh, the, the pandemic so far, so far over the last 18 months. We have certainly seen a number of protests, though, particularly following at events where Justin Trudeau has been attending. A number of them have been uh, somewhat, they've been very loud. Um, again, some of them getting, uh, I think you could fairly say towards aggressive uh, would be an accurate way of putting it. And again, really, uh, really taking aim at things like the, the wearing of masks, rules to wear masks in, in public places. Uh, vaccine mandates and the concept of those coming into effect. We've seen some of them calling Trudeau a traitor. We've seen some very loud uh, vocal groups here at some of these these campaign stops so far. And again, really, I think it's a conversation here that we're we're seeing of how do we how do we have this discourse as a country and have a, a conversation around this in a way that um, that will get to those issues that I think everybody is really concerned about. Right. So you don't see this kind of issue going away anytime soon. 
No, you know, I think that right now, especially with the, the current political climate, we're, we're really in a, a situation where people are, there, there's a lot going on for people, right? There are people who are um, extremely exhausted, who are frustrated, who are angry, who um, maybe don't have trust in the government and institutions. And, and kind of depending uh, where you're sitting here, there, there's really this whole kind of combination of really tricky, thorny um I guess, emotions and concerns to work through. Again, some of those are rooted in fact. Some of them are not rooted in fact, can be blatantly said to be not rooted in fact. But again, I think that what we're looking at here really is very strong, deep feelings, whatever those may be, and watching how those are kind of combusting and reacting against each other in the public sphere. So certainly uh, certainly a situation that's going to likely continue to be uh I guess you could say volatile, possibly, and and certainly interesting as we watch going forward. Oh, it certainly is. All right. Thanks so much for your time, Amanda. Thank you. It's Global News political reporter Amanda Connolly talking about one of the big issues, which has remained so now that we're five days into this, of the uh, federal election campaign. That is mandatory vaccinations. Every party slightly different on this. And speaking of parties and party leaders, so so far this week we've spoken with Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Coming up on this show, we'll be talking with Green Party leader Annamie Paul. And, you know, when you think about all the headlines involving the Green Party over the last couple of months, um, you have to wonder, like, are they getting traction in the election campaign, given all of the internal problems that they had recently, too? So we'll talk to Anime Paul about that and mandatory vaccinations and more coming up on the show. Also, I'm asking you this morning about why are people not taking jobs in the hospitality industry? That is notoriously short of workers right now. And there's been a lot of speculation. You hear, you know, some managers, some restaurant owners saying that, oh, they think it's CERB. Oh, that's why, you know, they're not getting workers. But you know what? I'm hearing from workers who say, no, that is not the case at all. In fact, I got an email here from Bruce, who said, you know what? People aren't leaving the hospitality industry for the CERB, he said. When the pandemic hit, they were merely forced to find other sources of income. I think a lot of them even went into the construction industry, he said. Bruce says, I went worked in the restaurant industry for a long time. And what I found is that they try to make their own rules, he said. They never pay overtime. If you mention getting paid for a stat holiday, all you get is a funny look. He said, I worked in the kitchen, so we never got tips. And we usually worked one hour, at least OT every night, sometimes more. Split shifts, split days off. He said, so it's time for changes for sure. See, that's what I kind of suspect there is that workers always seem plentiful And now workers just want more certainty. And they're thinking, you know what? I don't have to go back to work in the hospitality industry. I can find something with more regular hours for the same or more pay. So you tell me, why do you think there's a labor shortage in the hospitality industry? This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the Bloedel Conservatory and how the corpse flower that is named Uncle Fester is blooming. It just started to bloom last night, first time in three years. You know who's not going to be in the lineup to smell that thing? Our Raji Sohal. Right, Raji? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, no, it smells too. You just can't. You're not going to see that thing. Uh, I am. What? Of course, I'm going to check it out. I have to. Come on. There's going to be so much coverage on it today, and then it blooms for only a couple of days, and then it's done. And I hear it gives new meaning to the word stinky, like overwhelming, <laughs> overwhelming, the stinkiest of stinky. And so I got to experience that. <laughs> See, there you go. I love your curiosity. You got to go and check with, it out for yourself. Along with everyone else in Vancouver, right? 
<laughs> right, but yeah, you can always Instagram it because let's face it, this is not the most attractive of giant flowers. No, it's not. But apparently it's a record holder because it's tall, 12 feet. So that's the world record for the largest bloom in its form, which is obviously going to be something super technical. I know there's people out there that are going to be like, what? No, sunflowers are taller or something. No, in its form, look it up. Um, but it's an endangered species. And that smell, the putrid smell, like something rotting, is actually what in part attracts pollinators along with its um, really deep red color. But no, it's not very pretty. It's it's crazy stinky is what it is. Does it not remind you though? Do you just like the idea not get in your head that's 12 feet tall, like a little shop of horrors? It's not like somewhere in the back of your mind. It totally is. Yeah. But <laughs> you know, I think that there's got to be something there about it waking up your senses to smell something that strong. Like it oh. probably has some good side effect, right, Simi? Like maybe. Is that what you're hoping? You sound like yeah, you're really reaching is. on this one. <laughs> I am because I'm not one to like run to crowds just yet. And there's going to be a crowd there for sure. Everyone that goes in is only allowed 20 minutes. Probably 20 minutes would be too much for me. Yeah, that's not seem, that seems very optimistic to be near something that is so stinky. Wouldn't it be like, all right, 30 seconds, move through. 30 seconds, yeah. move through. <laughs> Nothing to see here, just smell, keep moving. Yeah, you're right about the heightening of senses. I'll bet when you like walk out of there and you leave that smell behind, you're going to be like, I smell other flowers. I smell beauty. I smell all sorts of other wonderful things. Yeah, I once got to do a story with a perfumier, someone who makes really? perfumes, and she she carries along everywhere she goes. She carries a little tincture of uh, coffee beans. Coffee beans, right? Yeah, they're a palate cleanser. Yep, this blew my and mind so, the first time I learned this. I learned it at <laughs> one of too. the perfume, you know, shops. Like when I went there to go buy perfume, and they handed me coffee beans, and I was like, "This is genius. This works." Oh, to smell between testing different yes. perfumes. Wow. No one's ever offered me that. Um, but You're shopping yeah. at the wrong places. <laughs> well, maybe maybe if you smell uh, good old Uncle Fester at the Bloodell Conservatory, it'll wake up your sense of smell even more. Hmm. I'll, I'll be able to report on this after I check it out. I look forward to this. Uh, we were also going to talk today about um, this. There's, there's a lot of studies that are going on, like we're essentially human experiments research-wise, right? Mm -hmm. Because of what's been going on during the pandemic. And they've been studying babies, yeah, this one's so fascinating. Babies born in the COVID pandemic have lower IQs. Three-month-olds now score 80 on the IQ test compared to 100 before the virus struck. This is a study that came out of Brown University in the States. So that means 22% of pandemic babies have lower IQs. I'm not surprised by this, Simi, because I was one of those parents that before I had a kid, I read a lot of books about uh, intelligence and how the brain works and this kind of thing. And all of them said, you need to expose your baby to tons of different people, different languages, different faces. And variety was the, the key there, as well as variety of environments, in a variety of smells and sounds and shapes and textures. And like pandemic babies didn't get that variety. In fact, they were told, uh, a lot of parents were told to keep your kid close, keep them home, don't expose them to too many people because people have viruses. <laughs> and I wonder, so I, I do wonder though, like, will there be a point where this gets made up? Because they're obviously just looking at babies that are like women who were pregnant during the pandemic and then had the babies during the pandemic. So at some point, will that get made up, you think? I don't think so. I think the way that the brain works is that um, there are certain windows 
that you can, in which you're extremely, the brain is like a sponge. It's more what they call plasticized or plastic. And you are so impressionable. Babies are just like sponges, right? They take in everything that they possibly can. So the more they're given, the more their brains grow or, or develop rather. And this made me think personally that you know, when Dr. Bonnie Henry says that she's she's not going to ma- mandate masks for extremely young children, I trust her because it is weird for young children to wear them. You know, they don't wear them properly. You put a mask on a very little kid and they just touch their face more, right? Mm. But then I also think about like five-year-olds, they're still learning to read people's facial expressions. Yeah. That's when they learn how to interact socially and psychologically. And so if you're obstructing half of someone's face and their facial expression when they're supposed to be learning about reading faces at that time, like for sure that affects development. So I just found this uh, research fascinating. And I hope that people um, think about maybe not pressuring the uh, province to push Bonnie Henry to, you know, mandate things that scientifically we shouldn't be necessarily doing. We will see. Raji, thank you. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. Turning our attention to the federal election now. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau is in Victoria today before moving on to Alberta, while Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is in the Ottawa area. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh spending the day in Edmonton. Meanwhile, Green Party leader Annamie Paul also on the campaign trail in Toronto. Now, yesterday, she shared her vision for Canada, including the, quote, radical reform of long-term care, guaranteed livable income, affordable housing for all, universal pharmacare, child care, everything that they call the complete social safety net. So let's talk more about how the Green Party is faring in this campaign. Joining us now is Anami Paul, the federal Green Party leader. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Penny. Let's talk first about the campaign pledge, a complete social safety net. Where would the money come from for all those promises? Well, the money comes from uh, redirecting it from places that it shouldn't be at the moment, things like the $23 billion in fossil fuel subsidies. It comes from the savings uh, that uh, we'll see in the system when people are better taken care of because, you know, to me, there's this real misunderstanding that uh, not investing in these things uh, is cost-free, but it actually costs us more money not to act uh, than to uh, than to act. And so... The savings uh, will come uh, through, you know, people being better taken care of, having better health care, better productivity, um, better being able to take care of themselves and their families. That just sounds like, though, that you're just hoping for savings. Like, would there be cuts? Would there be new taxes? Oh, no, we're not hoping for savings. One, one of the things we're always really proud of is that uh, when we uh, when we put out, and we will be putting out uh, our um, the planks of our platform, uh, we always have it fully costed. We always have, we always show exactly where the money is going to come from. And so this will be the same as well. Um, there's always, um, there's always going to be, as I said, costs, uh, it's not costs, sorry, savings um, that you get uh, when you have people that are protected. And of course, we've always advocated for ensuring that corporations and the wealthy uh, pay their fair share, which they aren't uh, at the moment. Um, but we have never advocated for and, and are not planning to advocate for increased uh, taxes on uh, low- and middle-income Canadians. Right. I guess the question then is, what do you consider wealthy Canadians? That's that's a great question. I mean, we're talking about people, we're talking about people in the top 1%. Uh, We're talking about people earning over $20 million a year. We're not talking about uh, 
you know, it's a very, it's a very um, generous uh, and inclusive uh, definition of when we're talking about people who fall below that. So this is really about those uh, who have not paid their fair share for um, forever um, and corporations who aren't paying anything at all. And between that and, as I said, uh, the tremendous savings that you get when people are better protected, uh, we can pay for this. And we've demonstrated in previous platforms how we pay for it. And I really want to underline that it costs so much money when people are not well taken care of. In our criminal justice system, in mental health care, in loss of productivity, uh, we've seen during the pandemic how much it costs when people uh, don't have the supports that they need. Now, this has been a popular campaign topic, it seems like, all five days the campaign has been going on. But what is the Green Party's take on mandatory vaccinations? Where does the party stand? Uh, well, you know, there's, there's, it seems like mandatory vaccinations means one thing one day and something else another day uh, to the parties that have been speaking about it the most. Uh, in the case of the Green Party, we have been very clear throughout uh, the pandemic, vaccines save lives. Anyone who is eligible to be vaccinated should be vaccinated. If they haven't done so already, they should make the uh, earliest possible appointment to do it. It's critical to um, helping us defeat COVID um, um, and the pandemic. Um, There is no question that there are going to be people that are going to need to have uh, a reasonable accommodation, whether it's because they have underlying medical conditions or for religious reasons or, or whatnot. Uh, and so, you know, we need to make sure that in those cases we have something in place uh, that allows uh, them to uh, be protected and also those uh, who uh, are vaccinated uh, to be protected as well and the general public. And so I'm sure whatever system we put in place is going to uh, be a system that reflects that. But what system would you put in place? Like, would you say mandatory vaccinations if you want to travel domestically, if you work for the federal government? What would you do? Well, it's what I said, uh, which is that, you know, everyone who is eligible to be vaccinated uh, should be, and we encourage them uh, to be. Uh, There are always going to be, and every party has acknowledged that. And, of course, the federal government already has acknowledged that, uh, and the Treasury has acknowledged that there will be people um, who are exceptions to that case because there are always exceptions to every case. We need to make sure that there's something in place for them. It seems like what is being recommended by the Immunization Task Force and other epidemiologists is some form of rapid testing. Uh, we know that's what other countries are doing as well. And so we'd likely, um, we'd likely be looking at, uh, at something like that. Right. So would you make it a rule then that unless you had an exception other than that, if you're going to work for the federal government, you must be vaccinated? Uh, I, it's exactly, well, just to say again, there, there will always be exceptions to that. Uh, there are people who have underlying health conditions, for instance, that make it impossible for them to be vaccinated. Their medical professionals have, have told them that they cannot be vaccinated. And so we need to have some way for those people to be protected and also to ensure that those who work with them are protected as well. So we all know full well that whatever system is designed, and certainly the unions um, that represent federal employees will ensure that whatever system is designed is one that ensures that as many people who can be vaccinated are, but those who are not able to be for the reasons that I said uh, have some kind of reasonable accommodation. Okay, so then when is the campaign platform going to be released? So we're, we're you know, we want to, to do it in, uh, in an interesting way. 
Um, you know, there are t- there are, have been times uh, with us and with other parties where we do it uh, with planks. Um, we have three themes that we're focusing on in this election, our green future, completing our social safety net for a life with dignity, and also a just society. And so we're going to be introducing those planks uh, one by one. Um, we're very excited to do that. We've uh, been introducing the themes, uh, and we'll be getting into uh, the details in the days to come, all of it culminating in, uh, in our platform. Uh, but we're hoping that by doing this that this way, particularly given how distracted people in Canada are by the pandemic, by forest fires, um, by, you know, the situation unfolding in Afghanistan, all of these challenges that we're facing, um, that this will be a way that we can focus some of their attention, at least on one part of what we're proposing, rather than dumping a, a huge document on them all at once. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me. That's Annamie Paul, Federal Green Party Leader of Canada on the campaign trail. She's in Toronto today. And as mentioned, you've got uh, Conservative Leader Aaron O'Toole in the Ottawa area. He's been doing those town halls. NDP Leader Jagmeet Singh in Edmonton, Justin Trudeau in Victoria. Every other party has been going back and forth about their plans for mandatory vaccination. I'm not sure. I'm, we didn't get really a clear answer from Annamie Paul about what exactly the Green Party would do on that front. And this has come up as an issue. Canadians overwhelmingly support the idea of certain industries, certain areas having mandatory vaccinations. Even Live Nation just announced this morning that if you want to go to a concert, they are working towards people going to concerts having to show proof of vaccination in Canada. That is something they are going to be putting in place. So no surprise that that's a hot, hot topic on the election campaign. This is Mornings with Simi. The Massey Tunnel is set to be replaced in 2030 with an eight-lane tunnel. That is an announcement that was years in the making and faces a lot of criticism for that delay and for the potential price of, at this point, more than $4 billion. Now, Transportation Minister Rob Fleming pointed out yesterday that this has the support of local mayors, but you know what? Not every local group is happy about it. Joining us now is Anita Huberman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Good morning, Anita. Good morning, Simi. Now, your group does not like this. Why is that? Well, we actually did present uh, to the Metro Vancouver Mayor's Council and opposed uh, their position relating to wanting a tunnel. Uh, We have been advocating and did agree with the previous uh, BC government around a bridge solution for that George Massey infrastructure. And we were very disappointed with the decision that was made by the B.C. government yesterday. Uh, It really does not and will not adequately address the region's growing population and growing congestion. And now we are back to square one and uh, and still, you know, Surrey and the South Fraser Economic uh, Region is, is compromised. What do you think would have been better? Well, I believe uh, an 8 to 10 lane bridge would have been an ideal solution if we had stuck, if the BC government had stuck to the original transportation infrastructure, 80% of that would have been built. Surrey is still growing, Simi, by 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. 
by 2050, there's another 1.3 million people that are going to be moving into the metro area, many of them living in Surrey, south of the Fraser. Many of the 600,000 immigrants over the next three years that are coming to Canada are going to be coming to Surrey, to Vancouver, uh, to the major urban areas, and because this is where the services are. And, and really, uh, to have basically, it's, just, it's not an eight-lane bridge or an eight-lane tunnel. It's a six-lane tunnel with two of the lanes are dedicated to rapid bus transit mm-hmm. and an active transportation pathway. So where, where, where was the traffic supposed to go, though, Anita? Once it made it through, if there was a 10-lane bridge, where was it supposed to go? Just bottle up at the next point, which is the Oak Street Bridge or the Knight Street Bridge? I, you know, we had, have always said that uh, this piecemeal approach to transportation planning, uh, the way that uh, transportation planning is politicized, uh, it doesn't make sense uh, for our growing population. And so you do have to take a look at uh, different areas uh, in Surrey, uh, in, in the South Surrey area, uh, in Delta, in Richmond, uh, to really address those uh, choke points in conjunction with a major infrastructure project, uh, such as a tunnel or a bridge. But what about it the transit? Is- I mean, there, there is going to be more transit on this. There is going to be transit, but uh, people are still moving to electric vehicles. Uh, you can't totally move people into a bus solution. And, uh, and remember, we, you know, this, uh, not everyone will, will use a bus. So, uh, and, and you're going to have active transportation pathways in a tunnel. That doesn't make sense either, uh, especially given our, our weather patterns uh, in the winter. So uh, a bridge solution would have been way better from our perspective, and uh, we were just disappointed uh, by the B.C. government's decision yesterday. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that. Thank you, Simi. Take care. You too. Anita Haberman, CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. i got to tell you, the more we talk about this, the more I'm realizing that I think what we need to do is we need to pick some more crossing points. Do you know what I mean? Like the ones that we picked 40, 50 years ago are not necessarily the only ones that we should have now. So, okay, build this eight-lane tunnel, but let's start talking about some other crossing points too to alleviate and move around some of this congestion. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. One of the questions we're asking you today has to do with the labor shortage here in BC. Like, what do you think is the reason why that's happening, particularly in the hospitality industry? Did people find something better that they liked? Like, what's happening there? Simi at cknw.com. To talk more about this, we are joined now by Jeff Guinard, who's the executive director of Able BC, which is BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. Good morning, Jeff. Morning, Simi. So, what's going on in the industry? What is causing this labor shortage, do you think? Yeah, there's a few things about it, right? So first off, it, it's quite serious, right? In, in the before times, we probably had about 190,000 people working in our industry in BC, and we're about 40,000 workers short at the moment. So if you're wondering why your favorite restaurant or pub is, is closed a couple days a week or has reduced hours or maybe doesn't have a full menu, it's entirely because of staff. We're hearing a few things from the front line, and um, some of it is, you know, there are workers who are definitely still on the federal assistance programs, which are, are well-intentioned, but in some cases have been an accidental disincentive to employment. We, we hear that directly from, from some folks. Um, but what happened during the pandemic is, you know, these the average liquor server in BC can make about $35 an hour, but during the pandemic, they were not, right? We 
rate reduced hours and uh, you know you, you go to work and you get yelled at by customers who disagree with public health protocols that you're legally forced to mandate so a lot of people left the industry um, and at the same time we're also seeing some of the folks who held on to their jobs you know were maybe closer to retirement uh, now that they're kind of seeing coming out of the pandemic they're stepping away from it right so it's we're getting um, like a perfect not, storm. Yeah, there's a few new workers coming into the market, as well as some of our, our long-serving employees are leaving. Now, is this a sign for the industry, do you think, Jeff? Because I've heard from a lot of people this morning who say they got out during the pandemic. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons why is that, you know what, they want a regular schedule. They want regular hours. They want two consecutive days off. These are things that, you know, the restaurant mm-hmm. industry hasn't exactly been known to be able to do for their employees. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why our labor force generally skews younger, right? I mean, it's uh, those of us who worked in the hospitality industry, I mean, that's why I left it at one point as well, right, and, and do this just now. Um, but I will say there's never been a time we'll be more open to flexible hours, right? Because it's back in you know, once upon a time, you could hire someone and expect them to work full-time. We're finding a lot of folks now want to work part-time or want to have more flexibility in their schedules. We're so desperate for labor, but those are the kinds of things that are, are, are negotiable, absolutely, Right. I mean, as well as extra vacation time. Um, I've heard the criticism a number of times. People say, just pay more. I mean, that's that's an answer for a lot of things, I suppose. But um, the difficulty with that is we just simply don't have the money because we, we are paying more. I mean, our wage costs have gone up about 25 percent in the past four years. Right. So it's not just about throwing money at the problem. I mean, if that were the case, we, we would do it. Uh, it would mean, though, that, you know, burger to beer would cost $45 at some point, right? There's, there's limits to how much we can we can pay in those things. But you can surgery. schedule in regular hours, right? That's the biggest complaint I've heard from people is I just want to know that when I get to work, I'm going to work my seven, eight-hour shift and not be told I can go home early uh, yeah. and then not get paid or have to wait for a phone call to if I know if I'm going to go into work. Yeah, the, the challenge in the hospitality industry is we're in, immediately responsive to demand all the time, right? So if you go into work and uh, we're expecting it to be a busy Friday and it turns out not to be, uh, you know, we still have to bring people in and pay them a minimum number of hours, but we're not going to keep you there when there's no work to do. Uh, we're going to let people go home for that. And it's not that we're, we're trying to mess with people's schedules. It's just the restaurant is, or the pub is currently losing money when we do that, right? So it, it's a bit of a balance with that. Uh, but for the most part, as we're... we're coming back through recovery, we're seeing demand increase. So that's not happening as often as it was. I mean, during the pandemic, you can you can totally understand. I mean, there's just folks were unsure uh, of how they felt going out, even though it was, it's, it's been safe to drink out and dine out in BC for a long time. Um, people didn't necessarily feel comfortable doing it. Now that people are coming back, we're seeing the demand come back, which is why we're so short for labor. So uh, I just strongly encourage anybody who's, um, who's left the industry, I mean, go in, in any pub, bar, restaurant that uh, you're interested in and go and have that conversation with them. I think you'll be surprised about the flexibility we have now. Yeah. Can the industry adapt, do you think? I mean, if workers want more flexibility, if they're demanding these things, can the industry do it? I think we can. It's a, it's a long-standing concern even before the pandemic, right? And uh, you've seen in, in other jurisdictions, people have experimented with different ways of, um, of compensating staff. And I think some of those discussions are definitely long overdue in BC. I mean, we're, we're not uh, a perfect industry by any stretch, but I think there is something a little flexible and a little intermittent about working in the hospitality industry in general, and that's also part of its strength, right, which is why some folks mm-hmm. will come in and uh, when they just want to pick up evening shifts or just want to pick up weekend work when they have another job or something like that. Right. Uh, so the industry can adapt, but it's really going to be um, every individual location, right, and it's just driven by the customers around it and, and, the, and the rhythms of that particular business. So go ahead and talk to the owner or whoever's hiring and see what you can arrange. It is pretty clear, though, Jeff, right, that the people clearly – want to go out and eat 
and they they have the money to do so. So because like a lot of prices have gone up for when you go to a restaurant, but there doesn't seem to be any shortage of customers. So it sounds like there is room here for the industry to move and adapt for these new workers. Yeah, I mean, what ended up happening, you can see we had to put artificial constraints on our business. I mean, go up to a place like Whistler, literally every door you walk past us a sign out that they're hiring. And you can see some places have only 50% or so of their actual capacity in use because they don't have enough staff to cover the rest of it, right? And they have signs out front that say, you know, excuse us while we're, we're doing our best to serve you during this difficult time. But yes, the demand is increasing. I mean, that's, that's the good sign. Um, you have to put that in context, though. I mean, for the past 18 months, most people in the hospitality industry have been losing money or breaking even. And it takes about 12 months to return to profitability on that. So, uh, you know, I know folks have said just pay more. But the only reason we're even open in some cases is because of programs like the federal wage subsidy that have gotten us to this far. So there is no more money in the business for that yet. Um, but I mean, having said that, you still people have squeezed out uh, extra incentives for it. I mean, you, you, I've seen some industries have been able to provide large signing bonuses or something like that. That's just not, you know, something that we can do practically right. in an industry that exists more on part-time casual work. But what would you say to a manager or an employer right now who is trying to hire people? How should they try to attract workers? Yeah, what we're finding works in, in some cases, right, is, you know, we have to respect that the workforce has changed during the pandemic, right? And, and their, their their needs have changed a bit. So definitely flexibility in the scheduling. Some folks want that means they want to, you know, intermittent. Some folks that means they want very rigid set hours, right? So I'd say make sure you're offering those. Um, one of the things that became very clear to me during the pandemic is the importance of your culture, right? And it has to be absolutely unacceptable when customers come in and yell at staff uh, for something that's beyond the staff's exactly, control. We're yeah. not even talking about service in the restaurant or pub. We're talking about customers who are upset about public health protocols or, you know, discussions around, you know, mandatory proof of vaccination, things like that. I mean, it's really important that employers just have their teams back and have the workers back during those contexts. Uh, and then we're also finding things like, you know, benefit programs have become a whole lot more important, right? There's been a massive focus on health for the past uh, year and a half. And finding the employees that are able to offer those programs now, like a health and dental program or prescription drug coverage uh, or additional extended health benefits, uh, have been, people have been responding to it really well. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's a combination of some flexible hours uh, to meet the employees' needs, uh, ensuring we have their back and that their culture is the right fit for them, um, as well as um, you know, ensuring that we're, we're matching up the pay for, this, for, their, right. uh, for their skills. Seems like a whole new world, though, doesn't it, right? Like, Jeff, if you'd said a couple of years ago that that's what the restaurant industry was going to need to offer, I think people would have thought you were crazy. Probably so, yeah. I will say one of the things that deeply impressed me through the pandemic, and you know, I, I see it you know, firsthand every day, is the resiliency of these operators out there. I mean, I think some people have you know, been, you know, they're working in their restaurants and pubs six, seven days a week, you know, 20 hours a day to, to make the business work and to keep people employed. Um, and I, I think that passion and enthusiasm is going to help them adapt at this moment. But uh, yeah, we're going through some change. And if you're a listener out there who's maybe had a, you know, it's taken a little longer to get your meal recently when you've gone out or you, you, you've noticed that something doesn't, is, is not quite up to the standards of pre-pandemic, please bear with us. We are doing our best to sort it out and uh, we'll be respectful of the folks who did show up to work. All right, Jeff, thanks so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Have a great day. Stay you safe too. out there. You too. That's Jeff Guinard, who's the executive director of BC's Alliance of Beverage Licensees. We're talking about the hospitality industry, the labor shortage, and what's it going to take for the industry to lure back workers? You know what? It's too easy. Like a, some, if you probably heard them in the news or on social media, somebody saying, oh, it's because of SERP. No, it's not. It's because the industry for a long time had a cheap and easy supply of labor, and that's just not the case anymore. There is more competition for those jobs. And you heard Jeff's 
say it too. Restaurant owners, managers need to start thinking about how to attract workers. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, you can't really go wrong with Trooper as a theme song. I'm just going to suggest that to our new afternoon host, host of the Jazz Joe Hall Show, which debuts on Mondays with us now. What do you think, Jazz? Do you like Trooper? That's not bad. That's not bad. It's, uh, it kind of gets you excited, gets you ready, right? ready to go. You know, I, I like it. I Are like you going to raise a little hell? That's the plan. Uh, you know, I, I know people sort of think of me as someone who's going to come in and chase people down hallways like I used to do in television or uh, challenge uh, folks like it in legislation. That's part of it. That's what we do here uh, at CKNW. But you also say please and thank you and have a conversation once in a while as well. So a little of both, I hope. I hope so, too. I know you're going to do a great job. We're so excited to have you here. So I want people to get to know you. Uh, are you a little are you excited? A little nervous about Monday? A little of both, actually. You know, uh, you know, I've been in broadcasting for a very long time, but uh, just haven't done radio in a while. And then yeah. you also respect the fact that you're at a heritage station. It plays a big role in the conversations that we have in this city. It's a town square, and you want to do a good job. But it, we've had a really good week so far. We're getting ready for the show. The producers are, are very motivated. Uh, we've got some good ideas. Uh, so I'm looking forward to Monday. TV is one thing, man. I'm with you on that one. But it's not three <laughs> hours in front of a microphone that you're feeling. Yeah, that's right. It's a whole different, a whole different <laughs> ball game. It is. So you're going to be with us for this hour. We're going to do an interview a little bit later, but I also wanted people to get to know you mm-hmm. during this chat. So let's ask you a few questions here and find out about Jazz Chahal. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Williams Lake in the interior, so I'm a caribou boy. I was born in India, uh, and my dad had emigrated uh, a few years prior, and um, mom and I came in 1972, so I was two years old. Uh, I grew up there. My whole childhood was there, and, and uh, I would describe it as idyllic. I, I mean, I'm very fortunate to grow up in a small town, really. My parents still live there. Uh, I, there's still a small town boy in me, and there's always a deep connection to the interior. Um, but like a lot of immigrant kids, when you come, you struggle with English. Uh, I used to be the only kid pulled out of class uh, to get extra help. Yeah. And um, that that sort of instills... Um, you know, the fighting spirit in you a little bit. But I also pinch myself that it's such a great country that you can get that help. And then one day you're sitting in the legislature uh, using language to have a debate with the premier or senior ministers. Um, it hit me the first time I spoke in the legislature in regards to my personal yeah. journey. It's, it hit me twice in my life. That would be the first one. Second one. The first one of all places, when I used to grow up, I love watching CNN. We first got cable in Williams Lake. So I remember a particular story where I think the U.S. had bombed Libya after the Lockerbie bombing. And years later, I became a journalist and a foreign correspondent. And I got, uh, we were coming through Tunisia, I was covering the Arab Spring. So I just did Libya and then I was heading to, uh, sorry, did Egypt and was heading to Libya. Got into Libya and it took all day to negotiate with rebels to get into Tripoli. And so when we got in there, I got into Muammar Gaddafi's uh, compound. He had just fled. And it was just fascinating, right? In the middle of this revolution. And it sort of hits you like a fist and going, how the, the heck does a kid from Williams Lake <laughs> right? end up in Muammar Gaddafi's house? And it reminded me of watching that story. So I looked around Muammar's house and I looked up and there was a chandelier. So I grabbed a chair. I took out my pocket knife because any good kid from Kiribu has a pocket knife. And <laughs> And I cut off a piece of his chandelier. Ah. And I keep that at home in my home office. Every once in a while, there's a reminder. So, you know, it's, I'm very fortunate, like 
all immigrants who come to this country. So very lucky. I love that story, yeah. right? And you know what? Your parents must have been so proud because I know for years my dad always said to me, how come you can't get a job at CNN? How come you work? How, you should work at CNN. And I used to say, why? Like, why do you bug me about this, dad? <laughs> and he used to say that it was because you could go anywhere in the world and sit in the smallest village and you could still watch CNN. CNN. <laughs> that was such a big deal for him. Uh, okay, next question. What is the first job you ever had? Like your job as a teenager, what was it? Uh, McLeod's Hardware Store in Williams Lake. Uh, I used to fix bikes. And then I worked my way up to the main floor and uh, was a cashier after that. But I fixed bikes was my first job. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I took classes in the morning at the local college to save money my first year of post-secondary. And in the morning, noon till 5.30 would be rushed to McLeod's Hardware Store. And then my shift was at 5.30 and I would run to the local radio station. And I was just trying to learn broadcasting because I was kind of interested in it. So from 6 to midnight, I used to do the uh, country, I worked at the country music station. I would do the the shift there from on Saturday nights. So That's 6 amazing. to midnight. <laughs> you were all over the place in Williams Lake. Um, I heard you talking about beer yesterday, so I'm going to ask you this is a bit of a very subjective question though what is your uh, favorite craft brewery uh i'm, I'm gonna go local in and i live in, in delta i live in tawasan specifically i like four winds and we've got a oh, new one in the delta last boy yeah <laughs> and the second one's a delta one as well it's barnside brewing which is amazing because they you literally um the restaurant where you can get barnside is actually in a barn and they grow all their natural ingredients right there and the third one is a nod to the old riding i used to represent richmond queensborough which would be fuggles and warlock so those are my three you those are very good choices, by the way. Very good choices for a Delta boy there. Excellent. Now, a little question about sports here. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to say Vancouver Canucks are your favorite hockey team. Great. Yes. But what is your favorite Vancouver Canuck uniform out of all the uniforms they've had? Uh, I like the one with the killer whale. Uh, it's the, You what? Yeah, yeah. I like that one. I like that one with the C. You really? Know? Yeah, I do. I, I know that some folks pick the old hockey stick. and I like the color. I like the look of it. I think it's very local. You're talking in mid-90s Marcus Naslin, Todd yeah, Bertuzzi, yeah, Brendan Morrison, West yeah, Coast Express jersey. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Not the V, not the V. And I know a lot of folks have that, but I like that one. Yeah. One with the Orca. See, I'm always about um, that 1994 run because that was just so big. And I'm that uniform, that oh, okay, black, yes. orange, yellow, yes. right? With, yeah, oh, yeah. love yeah, that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Now, musically, yeah. so Guns N' Roses or U2? Um, I like both. I would probably choose you too. Um, and I was listening to Squire on his, uh, his uh, Bon Jovi. Oh, bon Jovi, there. yes. But I, I, was, I was thinking back to, you know, even Guns N' Roses and Bon Jovi, both those used to be the entrance songs for my basketball team in high school as well. So, so you play basketball in high school too? I'm a huge basketball fan, yeah. Yeah, I'm a big what basketball fan. didn't you do when no, you were growing no. up? No, no, I didn't do a lot of things. He's got in trouble too. But it was, <laughs> it, 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 uh, it reminds me of my basketball days especially, yeah. See? Child yeah, yeah. of the 80s, that's what you are, you just are, like that's me. True. Gen X heaven, Gen X. That's exactly it. That's so it. before we move on here, what do you want people to know about you? For Monday, what do you want them to know? I want you to I want them to know. Look, I I know think I understand a lot of the city, having covered it for thirty years. But I know what I don't know, and that's going to come from conversation and listening. Uh, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Uh, I don't have it all figured out, and I'm looking forward to just having a conversation. I think you get to a certain age where you say, you know what, let's figure this out together. And I'm I'm at that point in my life, and I'm looking forward to challenging people when I have to. But I'm really looking forward to listening as well and learning. So. This is a great learning experience. This job, like I absolutely love it. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Welcome back. We have Jazz Joe Hall with us for this hour. He's going to be, of course, launching his new show on Monday. And Jazz, I know one of the biggest experiences that you've had in your career is the amount of time you spent in Afghanistan. How long were you there for? I uh, have gone to Afghanistan seven times, separate times. I usually go for, used to go for about six weeks at a time. Uh, and so we'd be up in Kabul and a lot of time spent in southern Afghanistan, in Kandahar, that we had a very large military base there. So uh, time at the base and then out on patrol with troops. And then sometimes I'd go out with our, our, our team, um, but dangerous as well. Certainly, you'd be watching yeah. where you go. We try not to spend anywhere more than 15 or 20 minutes in Kandahar moving quickly and efficiently uh, because you don't want them to know that we're around. Because it's very difficult at that time, even though the Taliban hadn't taken over Kandahar, um, they were everywhere. And we knew that. The greatest, uh, I think, the strength of Canadian troops was that while we didn't win the war, uh, we didn't lose. A Kandahar city didn't fall because of the bravery of Canadian troops. But it's it's been a challenge since day one. Uh, And there's a myriad of uh, reasons why, and I won't bore our audience today, maybe another time. But it's it's sad to see right now what's happening. It That's is, what I was wondering. Like, what do you think when you see the pictures? Oh, when I see the pictures, I see um, uh, a humanitarian crisis, the early stages of humanitarian crisis in the midst of COVID. I saw a U.S. military that took its eye off the ball. They were in Afghanistan, and then they took their eye off the ball and focused more on Iraq. That really impacted them. They spent $2 trillion. To leave, I think, is the right decision. $2 trillion, people have died, and Canadians have spent billions of dollars as well. The challenge there is why do you go to war? If you're going to go to war, have a reason. In this case, it was to deal with Al-Qaeda. Well, you've dealt with Al-Qaeda. A long time ago, A long time ago. There's still about 50 to 100 hardcore uh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda members you'd find along the border in Pakistan or in Afghanistan side. But that's manageable. You can't, uh, however, change, um, you know, bring a liberal democracy to Afghanistan as much as the Russians could bring communism to to Afghanistan. Such a good point. Well, we're also going to talk with, you know, people who are locally connected to what they see in folding in Afghanistan as well. So joining us now is Ahmad Rahimi, who's president of the Afghan Canadian Association of BC. Ahmad, thank you so much for being with us this morning. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Do you have family, friends that you have been in contact with in Afghanistan in the past week? Yes, I do have uh, my sisters and uh, one of my brothers live there. And I have a lot of uh, relationship with my families and friends there in uh, we talk to each other. And, and uh, Mr. Hamey, what are they saying? What, what, what's, what, what are they thinking right now in, in Kabul or wherever they may be? What are they seeing? What are they feeling? Well, they see a lot of Taliban uh, going around with their, uh, the way they, they control the country. Everybody is scared of them because uh, they have a very bad experience uh, from 2001. And people doesn't know what's going to happen, and they haven't called their government yet, and people are shocked. Yeah, Mr. Rahimi, you know one of the things that I was a little surprised with is the Taliban is showing some restraint in their comments, saying that there may be a leadership council. Um, you know, women will be allowed to move freely within the teachings or their interpretation of uh, of of Islam. Do you believe? the Taliban, when they say there's mm-hmm. going to be greater restraint, that they will honor women's rights to a certain degree? Unfortunately, people cannot believe them, so do I. And we we don't trust them if uh, they uh, do things good for people. They say that for, for now, until they call their government. But unfortunately, they cannot call their government because uh, the, the Mr. Ghani uh, then handed uh, the power to them. 
that why they want to uh, help people without doing the same thing we did on 2001, or we are letting... Uh, women to um, have a rule in the government and they, they, they're just telling these things. We are not sure. Nobody believes them and most of the Afghan people doesn't believe them if they are be better than they were on 2001. What is your family going to do? How are they going to deal with this? Well, they are to stay home and nobody go out and they're very scared but lately I heard the women is going on on the streets, and they 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 tell them, you know, we are want our freedom, and um, and and the situation is very bad. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen in the past, and a lot of people want to leave the country. And as you say, uh, as as uh, as you've seen on the airport, the people was uh, going rushing on the airplane to get out from the country. It's a very bad situation right now. Mr. Rahimi, who do you blame for this? Is it the Americans for leaving uh, and, and with their uh, coalition partners like Canada? Is it Pakistan? Uh, is it the Chinese? Like, who do you blame for the broader um, challenge that is there and leaving the Afghan people where they are today and the challenges before them with the Taliban? Who do you blame for this humanitarian uh, challenge? Both. Uh, Americans should not pull their uh, soldier from Afghanistan in the first place. And secondly, uh, Pakistan interfere a lot in Afghanistan. Unfortunately, is the Pakistan to to make all the problem with Afghanistan because uh, Afghanistan was going to make a lot of uh, better life for people. And Mr. Ghani had a very good plan to build Afghanistan, but unfortunately, Iran and and Pakistan doesn't want to Afghanistan to succeed. Uh, that's why everybody interested in Afghanistan. Uh, what are you able to do from here then? Are you able to help? Are you organizing? What can be done? It must feel, it must feel helpless for you as well. We had a protest on uh, one day before Taliban going to take power in Afghanistan, and we have another one, a big one, uh, on uh, 28th of uh, August. And we're going to go in and, and let people know what's going on there. And the best things we can do by asking for the government of Canada to help people to get out from Afghanistan, as they promised 20,000 people, but that's not enough. We need a lot, a lot more people to get out from the country. We have a lot of educated people, and we have a lot of people have... Uh, uh, connection with their family in Vancouver mostly, and everybody calls me every day. Uh, believe me, I get more than 20, mm-hmm. 30 calls every day, and people asking for help. So I sent a letter uh, to Minister of um, Immigration, mm-hmm. and uh, one letter I sent to the Premier office, um, and when I asked them for help if they can sponsor people to get out from the country. Well, let us know how it goes. We'll keep in touch. Thank you very much for your time this morning. You're welcome. My pleasure. That is Ahmad Rahimi, who's the president of the Burnaby-based Afghan-Canadian Association of BC, talking about friends and relatives. Jazz, I can't even imagine how helpless that must feel, right? That you've oh, got friends, sisters, brothers there. Oh, it's 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 an, it's uh, it's hard to for me to watch the news sometimes. And the, and the sad part is the people that are leaving, they're smart people, they're motivated people. I was in Kandahar City once, and I was just shocked to learn the city engineer is 18 years old. Oh, my Because goodness. all the talent 
in that country, a lot of the talent has left. Doctors, lawyers, engineers, yeah. activists, journalists, women. I mean, that's the challenge is when this happens, you'll lose so much of your talent and that leaves. How do you build that back? How do you build it back, how, exactly? 